Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 to 13. This is the reading of God's word. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Well, um, uh, we are uh, nearing the end of our series in the book of Revelation. And if you've been with us, you know that we are looking at Jesus' letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And uh, these letters were written in a time when uh, Christians were being persecuted uh, for their faith. And it forced uh, people to start asking really big questions around what it means to follow Jesus um, in a time and culture that made it so difficult to follow him. And um, hopefully all of you have felt this throughout this series, but uh, these letters really could have been written to churches in 2021. I mean, uh, here in America, uh, we may not know what real persecution feels like, but um, if you think about it, we're dealing with so many of the same issues that Christians were dealing with back then. And so uh, we're kind of using this series as a way to examine our own church and our own faith uh, as we all navigate uh, what it means to follow Jesus in these crazy times. Um, I mentioned a few weeks ago that almost all these letters follow the same format. So Jesus uh, usually starts by giving um, an affirmation. So he tells the church something they're doing really well. And then uh, he follows that up with a corrective. So he uh, tells them something they're not doing so well. And then he closes every letter with like a challenge or a reassuring promise. Well, I mentioned that a few of the letters break from this pattern, and this is one of them. And, and there are only two churches that Jesus has absolutely nothing bad to say about. It's the church in Smyrna, which we already looked at, and then the church in Philadelphia, which we're looking at today. And if you remember, I said the one common thread between these two churches is that their communities marked by suffering. And it's this idea that uh, when we find ourselves in seasons of suffering, uh, we're often exactly where God wants us to be. And, um, you know, I know that can be really hard to stomach. You know, maybe it, it can even make us angry because how could suffering put us exactly where God wants us to be? Is, is God this sadistic God who, who wants, you know, is, is he heartless? Does he want his children to suffer? Um, and, and, and I know that it can, it can feel like that. But, you know, we know that's not true because, you know, when we read the Bible, we, the, the Bible often talks about how God weeps with us in our suffering. The Bible often talks about how God's heart breaks 
when he sees the pain and wickedness of the world. And so what do we mean when we say that it's often in our suffering that we're exactly where God wants us to be? And ultimately, we have to realize that God is a loving father, a loving father who wants what's best for his children. And he knows ultimately that what's best for his children is to be with him. And, and sometimes it's only in our suffering that we realize that. You know, you don't realize Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have, right? It's in our weakness that God's glory appears. And, and God uses these painful moments in our lives to break our pride, to strip us of the things we once uh, held on to for security, to grow and mature us as believers, and, and ultimately to draw us to himself. And this church in Philadelphia is a church that's been through a lot. Um, they, they're not only being persecuted by those on the outside, but it says they're being persecuted by those on the inside, by those who claim to be Jews, those who claim to worship the same God. And so uh, these Christians in Philadelphia are getting beat down on all fronts. They have no power, they have no status, and they're reaching a breaking point. And the first thing... Uh, if you notice that Jesus does, is he acknowledges it. He says in verse 8, I know that you have little strength. I know you don't have much left in the tank. I know you're hurting. You know, I know things have been so hard for you and your family. And, and even just that phrase, I know, I think tells us a lot about the God we worship. We worship a God who knows. A God who sees us in our pain. Um... You know, my daughter, uh, Avery, she's almost six now, and uh, we're already relying on her a lot to take care of her younger brother. And uh, my son, Jack, who is three, uh, he's a handful, okay? And, it, and it's nice when your oldest uh, gets to that age when she can start helping out. And so my wife, Carol, and I were always saying, uh, hey, Avery, can you put on Jack's shoes for him? Can you get him some water? Uh, can you make sure he's eating his dinner? And it's the burden that all older siblings understand, right? And um, my daughter, uh, she cracks me up because uh, last week I see her sitting on the couch and um, she just looks like she's ca carrying the weight of the world on her shoulders, right? This five-year-old, she's like sitting there questioning the meaning of her life. And uh, I'm like, you know, what's wrong, Avery? And she's like, it's so hard being an older sister. I have to do everything. Right. And I remember I, I sat down next to her and I said, I know it's hard. And she was like, no, you don't. And I was like, well, I was like, why wouldn't I know? Of course I know. I'm an older brother, too. You know, do you know how much I had to do for your Uncle Justin when we were little? And I saw something click. Right. And all it took was that small acknowledgement that I knew what she was feeling for some of that weight to be lifted off her shoulders. And it's not that she didn't have to be an older sister anymore, but all she really needed was to know that her dad understood. And so when Jesus says, I know that you have little strength, it's Jesus saying, trust me, I know it's hard. I know what you're feeling. And he does know. He knows what it's like to be hated by everyone. He knows what it's like to feel alone. 
He knows what it's like to be abandoned and misunderstood and exhausted because he went through it too. Isaiah 53 says he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. We have a God who knows. And maybe that's all some of us need to hear this morning, that God sees you and he knows. Now, others of us may be saying, uh, well, that's great that he knows, um, but can he do something about it? Can he actually do something about my unemployment? Can he actually do something about my marriage? Can he actually do something about my singlehood? Can he actually do something about my depression? And here we read that he can. Listen to what it says. Uh, He starts out by saying, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. What's Jesus saying here? He's saying, In those moments when all you see are closed doors, when all you see is doom, remember that I hold the key. And I'm the only one who can open and shut doors in your life. Jesus is saying, I got this. I'm in control. And he reiterates that in the next verse. He says, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. See, look, open your eyes. Because what you may see with your limited perspective is a closed door. What you may see is an obstacle, but what I see is an opportunity. And I know that because it's an open door I've placed before you. Um, If you're a science nerd, uh, you know that ants, like uh, many insects, have particularly bad eyesight. Okay, they can't see very far. And the way that ants make sense of their environment is they actually have to use the information they get from their antenna and their legs rather than from their eyes. And so they live in some sense just constantly reacting to the things they feel happening to them because they actually don't have the ability to see beyond their immediate circumstance, right? And and this is what Jesus is getting at here. He's saying, I know you have little strength. I know you feel inadequate. I know you feel like you're up against a wall, but you're not seeing what I'm seeing. In fact, you're unable to see what I'm able to see. You're reacting to the things happening to you But if you were able to see with my eyes, you would would see a completely different picture. What the enemy meant for evil, I intended it for good. What the enemy wants to use to break you, I want to use to shape you, to grow you, to transform you. Right? Like, How will you ever know you're becoming a more patient person unless your patience is constantly being tested? How will you ever know you're becoming a more forgiving person unless you have people to forgive? How will you ever know what community means to you unless you have a pandemic that takes community away from you for 15 months? right? And this letter is Jesus reassuring these Christians in Philadelphia who have next to nothing left that if they're willing to trust him, when all is said and done, there'll be a pillar in the temple of God. He's saying there's a one-to-one correlation between enduring suffering and becoming a strong pillar that's unshakable amidst life's biggest storms. Um, A pastor friend of mine this week uh, posted something on his Facebook uh, that I thought was so insightful. He said, um, I'm realizing that uh, the people who complain the most 
are often those who've suffered the least. Real suffering tends to wake you. It t- tends to wake you from your pettiness and make you aware of your blessings. And, you know, and, you know, like he was saying that in contrast, like the people who complain the least are often those who've suffered the most. Right. And, and I don't want to kind of glorify suffering in and of itself, because I think sometimes even with that, there is a temptation to wear our suffering as a badge of honor. And we can even use our suffering as a means to condemn and judge other people who we perceive as having lived a more comfortable or privileged life. Um, but I do wonder if just for a moment, how much our perspective would shift if we were to view the things in our lives that we see as the biggest thorns in our flesh, I wonder if just for a moment, if we were to start viewing those things, not as the things that keep us from living a full life, but I wonder how our perspective would shift if, if we started to view those things as the very raw material God is using to build us into the pillars he wants us to be. Right, And Jesus makes some big promises in this letter. If you take a look at verse 9, he says, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not but are liars, I will make them come down and come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Like these people who are trying to get you canceled, who are trying to marginalize you, who are making your lives so difficult right now, don't worry about them. I'll take care of it. I'll make them fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I've loved you, right? And then in verse 10, he says, since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trouble that's going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. In other words, he's saying there's a time of trial coming when I'm going to judge the entire world, when I'm going to bring justice to those who have been silenced and forgotten and discarded when I will right every wrong. And if you can just trust me amidst your trials now, know that I'm ultimately going to protect you. And Jesus has made this exact promise before. Um, in Luke 21, there's a scene where he's talking to his disciples about this great time of persecution that's coming when they're going to be dragged into synagogues and prisons and have to stand before, uh, stand trial before kings and governors. And he doesn't sugarcoat the fact that their lives aren't going to be any easier because of their relationship with him. He says it's going to be harder. And he says in Luke 21, 16, that even those closest to you, your parents, your brothers, your relatives, and your friends, they'll betray you. They will even kill some of you. And he says, everyone will hate you because you are my followers, but not a hair of your head will perish. By standing firm, you will win your souls. How is Jesus able to make such a bold promise? How is he able to say, look, everything is going to fall apart for you. You might even die, but somehow not a hair of your head will perish. Like, how is that even possible? Well, you know, the Greek word uh, in Luke 21 for standing firm uh, is the same exact word Jesus uses in Revelation 3, and that's translated here as enduring patiently. And you know where else we see that word? In Hebrews 12, and it's used to describe Jesus himself. It says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame, 
and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. If you want to talk about a closed door, look no further than the cross. If you want to talk about a people's collective hopes and dreams being crushed, look no further than the cross. You know that you know why that scene in the garden uh, the night before Jesus is crucified, you know why that scene is so profound? Because you have the one who in this letter we read supposedly holds the key of David begging his father to open the door. This man whose entire life and ministry was dedicated to opening doors for people, giving people a second chance at life, restoring people back to their communities, now finds himself in a moment when every door is locked shut. Think about the injustice of that. And when Jesus says, Father, if there's any other way, don't make me suffer by making me drink this cup, he's saying, if there's another door, Show it to me, please. But he says, but not my will, but yours be done. If this door has to stay shut for me, so be it. If this door has to stay shut so that you can do what you want to do, so be it. You see, Jesus was locked out so that you and I would be welcomed in. And because he endured the cross on our behalf, you and I can endure the crosses in our lives, knowing that they will never crush us. Um, You know, when Jesus breathed his last breath, you could count on one hand the people who stood there with him at the cross. Everyone left. Because, Because why would they stay? Right? What they originally perceived as an open door This Messiah that was going to finally overthrow the Roman government and fix generations of oppression, they now saw being shut right before their eyes. And they said, what's the point of standing around here? It's over. Let's pack up. Let's go home. But you see, these people were reacting to their circumstances. They couldn't see beyond what was right in front of them. All they saw was a cross. What they saw was utter humiliation, shame, and death, and what they could not see was that in three days Jesus would be raised from the dead, opening the door for you and I to know the Father. Um, you know, I know it's been a hard season for all of us, some of us harder than others. Um, this week, um, when I got the news of Christine's aunt, my heart just sank. Like, I, I haven't felt Uh, an ache like that in a long time. And it just casts this huge shadow on everything, right? And that's, that's often what suffering does. It's this dark shadow that follows you around wherever you go, right? Those of you who have lost parents or loved ones, you know that you can't experience a, a happy moment. You can't experience another birthday another, um, you know, milestone for your kids without thinking about your loved ones. So in some ways, like even the good moments start to be colored and start to be overshadowed by these, by these horrible tragedies, by these moments of suffering. And, and as, as I was thinking about that, I was reminded of something I read this week by a pastor, Hayden Hefner, and he writes this, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing a bit, bit here. He says, in the passing of shadows, we taste the nearness of the new Eden. 
Every sorrow on this side of Christ's return is a signpost telling us we're one mile closer to the new Eden. In the midst of our mourning, remember, the passing of a shadow means we are that much closer to the object. And reading that, um, I hope, you know, is a comfort to us because these words are a powerful reminder that it's often in our moments of greatest suffering that we feel closest to Jesus, that our hearts are aimed at eternity, that our souls begin to ache and long for our true home with Christ. And there really is no better place to be than that. And so uh, this morning, um, you know, we weep with those in our community who are hurting. And I can tell you, um, there are a lot. Uh, We mourn uh, the brokenness we see all around us and experience on a daily basis. Uh, But we also plead with the Holy Spirit to give us the strength to believe that all of this suffering has a purpose. It's one we can't always see with our limited perspective, but it's one that is guaranteed for us because Jesus has finished work on the cross. And so that's where our hope lies today. That's where our comfort lies today. Let's place our trust in Him. Let's place our trust that He can give us, that He can sustain us with His grace and mercy in a way that only He can. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we come to you um, confused, broken, angry, um, sad, uh, heavy because of because of all that you know we're experiencing on a daily basis, and. Um, Lord, we ask um, that you would um, remind us this morning that uh, we're not alone. We ask that uh, you would remind us of of your promise in Scripture that you are near to the brokenhearted and the crushed in spirit. That in some sense it's in our suffering that we uh, feel closest to you. And so, God, we... um, you know, in some sense, feel uh, resonate with this letter to the church in Philadelphia because all of us have endured such a difficult year. Um, you know that has just been uh, marked not only by a pandemic, by social isolation, being away from friends and family, navigating so much injustice and grief we experience um, on a daily basis. Um, but we were reminded that you know that you know where we are, and that you invite us to come rest in you. And so this morning, uh, we come and lay our burdens down at the foot of the cross, being reminded that you conquered death, and that though we suffer today, we don't suffer without hope. Lord, we ask um, humbly that you would sustain us, remind us of your goodness. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.